Alright, let's finish off the birth of tragedy here. This is going to be taking on the second half of the text, including, in my version, the chapter called, or the essay called, The Dionysiac Worldview, which is very much a repetition, sorry, Nietzsche scholars, of um, what Nietzsche was saying in the, over the course of the books, over the course of the book, sorry, but there are some insights that I want to, you know, some things I want to kind of take out of it. So for those curious, I'm starting here at about chapter or section 17, because this book is broken into these sections that are just numbered. They aren't, they aren't titled. So I'm starting here from about number 17. But before that, to kind of reiterate briefly, we were just introduced to the Socratic um, kind of intervention in art and how Nietzsche looks upon it very with animosity. He does not appreciate this drive towards reason and truth quote-unquote, or the phenomenal. He is very much more interested in reality, so to speak. He's not interested in looking through the world with kind of rose-colored glasses. He's not interested in, you know, the ideas that humans are fundamentally good nor bad, something we'll get to in another essay at another time. Uh, But instead, he's interested in the way that, you know, how have humans been as historical, you know, killing evil as we understand it now beings so this whole socratic drive towards reason and truth is for him just total hogwash total crap and that really throws a wrench in what we know to be art specifically tragic art or the tragedy where he tells us and this is on page 80 about that the dionysiac art should instill a kind of horror within the within the spectator Art shouldn't be something that you can just kind of passively engage in, in through, through kind of enjoyment. Like, you know, what in the 20th century we'd come to call the culture industry would, I think, have a lot to, uh, would really reflect this, this turn from art as horror to art as pleasure. Art as something that is for, you know, just kind of vanity. Because as he was so clear about tragedy and art more generally, demands us to kind of forego what it means to be an individual. Therefore, it means us to forego everything we know about ourselves, which will inevitably induce a kind of horror to take us back to a kind of primal state, what he calls the primal unity. So in the wake of this kind of Socratic move, the Socratic um, drive towards reason and truth, Nietzsche asks, is it possible for tragedy or for art to reemerge? which is kind of the guiding question for the rest of the text. And he'll, he brings us into Germany and German art and German music as German philosophy, for that matter, as zones for the reemergence of this. But before that, you know, we'll work through this a little bit more methodically. So to kind of sift out the transition a little bit more, that is the transition between tragic art to a kind of optimistic, um, you know, European, European art, uh, Nietzsche says that the the former, that is the tragic art, was guided by a lot, a, a more uni, uh, unifying, communitarian, artistic, uh, and universal character. Whereas the scientific art, if we can in fact call it art, is a you know individual, scientific, phenomenal one, something that is not interested in the thing in itself, as per Kant, but is instead interested in the appearance of the thing. So to give an example of this, we can think back to the genealogy of morality, where he says that the relationship between a bird of prey 
and I think he uses the example of a sheep, but it could be a goat or whatever. Uh, he says that that relationship fundamentally at its core is one of love, where the bird of prey loves the sheep because the bird of prey can eat the sheep. And there's that love that he Nietzsche wants to sift out to say that at the core, what we today or at that time would view as being a kind of realm of hostility, he says there that there was a kind of singularity, there was a kind of giving oneself over, that is the animal or the bird of prey or the sheep, to a situation that was beyond their control. So there was no individual there, there was just a giving oneself over to one species and the laws of that, the codes implied within that. So and with that, there are no judgments that pertaining to good and evil, there are simply acts. There's a kind of will. So getting at the heart of that dynamic is what is important for Nietzsche, and that is what essentially he is trying to do, except for humanity. Trying to get at the core of what it might mean for humans to be humans. Which, you know, he does shy away from, you know, admitting that there is in fact a kind of basic fundamental truth or ontological condition to humanity, as he says later on, which I'll get to. Uh, but still, he wants to point us in that direction, to try and remove the veil of culture, of optimism, of the good, to look at things as maybe not so nice. So in the context of the tragedy, or in the art form, or in the play, what he says comes to happen is the deus ex machina, that is the hand of God, comes to replace the metaphysical solace. So at one time, where the end of a play would induce in the spectator this metaphysical solace, this kind of extreme melancholic um, reaction to whatever happened on stage, that would be curbed by the introduction of um, the deus ex machina, that, that is the hand of God that would essentially save the day, that would essentially correct everything for the better, um, toward the better nature, angels of our nature, sorry, to appease the audience. So, as would be pretty clear, Nietzsche's got no time for that. He doesn't have any time for these kind of fake artificial drives towards or beliefs in the you know, benevolence of humanity. That He's got no time for that. But with all this being said, Nietzsche doesn't want us to think that the Dionysian trend, or Dionysiac for that matter, has simply disappeared completely. Instead, he says that it has been cast into the underworld. So it has come away from, you know, being in the public spotlight, being at center stage, to having to become something that is hidden, something cast into the sewers, or something like that, belonging to, you know, wh who are considered to be lower class or, you know, outside of the realm of the popular. Where above that, on the upper world or on the surface level world, exists the world of machines and science and knowledge, where things are correct, where things are classifiable, where things are organizable, according to various human-made constructs that he thinks are totally bonkers. So it is at this point that he gives us even a third uh, situation here, where so far the book has been guided by an opposition between Apollo and Dionysus, which then came to be replaced by an, a distinction between Soc Socratic and Dionysus, uh, Nietzsche introduces a third. So he says that we have the Socratic, we have the artistic, and we have the tragic. 
but those can also be understood in the following terms as the Alexandrian, that is referring to Alexander the Great, the Hellenic, referring to, you know, um, Athens and, and ancient Greece, and then we have the Buddhistic, which also corresponds respectively to uh, the Socratic with the Alexandrian, um, Alexandrian, sorry, Socratic, Alexandrian, beauty, Hellenic, and then tragic, Buddhistic, which I think for anyone interested in Nietzsche, this is a very interesting moment because it points to his interest in uh, Buddhist philosophy, which he doesn't really develop on here at all. He just kind of throws it out there that the tragic corresponds to this kind of Buddhistic realm, which is interesting, but it's not something I can really comment on because I don't know that philosophy very well, nor do I know what other points this comes up in Nietzsche's work. Um, but it's interesting, nevertheless, and I thought it, it, it was important to mention. So our world being the one dominated by Socrates, by science, by logic, by reason, Nietzsche says, therefore, it is also the world of the Alex Alexandrian, Alexandrian, God, Alexandrian. And in this world, it is necessary for the maintenance of slaves, a kind of slave class to keep the system going, precisely because it is a system predicated on the laws of science and logic and reason, it is inevitably an exclusionary dynamic. One that says, if you don't follow this clearly set out framework, we are going to cast you away. We are going to make you, you know, slaves, essentially. As opposed to the primal unity, which implied within the title doesn't exclude uh, what we see in the Alexandrian trek, track, in, which is also the Socratic one, you know, keep in mind of that, uh, we have this formation of a kind of slave class. But Nietzsche says that this is a very interesting moment because this is also the moment that humans begin to recognize themselves as humans and begin to recognize themselves as being, as having a kind of human dignity or the formation of, you know, the, uh, the roots of a kind of human rights thing. So it is the, si the system that depends upon slavery Yet it can't have slaves, lest it, you know, reveal to itself the extent that it is, you know, as barbaric as it once was in the past. So what happens is, and this is something that I think that he develops more in the genealogy of morality, what you see is a kind of class emerging that aren't exactly slaves and that they aren't working for someone else for, you know, no money or any kind of compensation. But you have slaves in that you have people who say no to themselves. People who hate themselves, who can't exist in the world in any kind of meaningful way because they are stuck in the kind of classificatory system of Alexandrian, of Socratic reason, of all of that that just forecloses possibility and grounds people in a kind of, um, you know, immobile state of arrested development. So in the face of this total Socratic Alexandrian system, Nietzsche gives us a very funny image. He says that those people that oppose that system, those people that oppose science and logic and reason, are like dragon killers. Funny enough. And that's on page 88, for anyone who's curious. So this brings us back, or this harkens back to another distinction that he makes between theoretical man and the artistic man, where theoretical man corresponds to the Socratic realm of science and logic and all that, and artistic man corresponding to the tragic to the Buddhistic, to the, you know, Dionysian. So theoretical man in this process, because science, 
because the Alexandrian, because the Socratic, and I'm sorry I keep repeating, you know, the same qualificatory terms, but I just don't, I, I just don't want anyone to get confused. Um, so theoretical man belonging to that realm begins to grow soft, according to Nietzsche, because their worldview becomes essentially the one. It becomes the one that is just taken for truth. So they don't need to develop talons and teeth and fur to be able to, you know, defend for themselves because they've conquered, they've won. And that kind of inspires a weakness. So in this, there is a kind of crack, a kind of opening, a possibility to usurp that authority. And I think that we, we can see that today. Like, you know, all those internet charlatans claiming to be quote-unquote philosophers or you know, any kind of logical thinking human are not that logical according to, you know, the basic tenets of logical thought or reasonable or knowledgeable, but are instead embracing a kind of illusory identity of that image. And it is by virtue of that, because that image has become to dominate that world, that they can just submit themselves to it. So they are not one above the pack, they are one with the horde, with the mass of, you know, people that are just adopting this doctrine like everyone else. So there's really nothing that original. Sure, they are louder, but they are not smarter, nor are they more eloquent, I would confidently say. We must beware of false attempts, though, that try to revitalize a kind of Dionysian worldview. And the one that Nietzsche focuses on here is the emergence of opera, where he says that opera might appear at first glance to revitalize music as a kind of melodic, possible place for, you know, artistic creation. He says that it is still too much endowed with the, I guess, the appreciation for speech over music. It is too much endowed with an appreciation over the sequential over the aleatory or the random. So whereas he sees a potential in opera because of the music, he sees it always being grounded, always that potential being sequestered by, you know, its emphasis on speech. I mean, I can't really say much more about that. But while I can't necessarily say more about it, Nietzsche tells us that it was believed among the public that it was a kind of return to a truthful human state or how he's been presenting the primal unity. And what he says about this is it goes as follows. So here we can see down to the very heart of that truly modern genre, opera. A form of art is forced into existence here by a powerful need, but a need of a non-aesthetic kind, the longing for the idol, the belief at the very beginning of time mankind was both artistic and good. Resuscitative was thought Resuscitative was thought to be re the rediscovered language of those original humans, and opera to be the rediscovered land of that idyllic or heroic good being who follows a natural artistic drive in all his actions, who, whenever he speaks, at least sings a little, and who promptly bursts into full song at the slightest stirring of emotion. But of course, Nietzsche says, that is not the case. There is no human that is fundamentally musical and good. Rather, the musical kind of emerges in order to bring us back to a primal state, the primal unity. 
And what is more, this original human is by no means good. And he uses this moment to kind of challenge the socialist movements at that time that he says as follows, uh, where we are faced by the socialist movements of, of the present and that we can no longer ignore. Man in his original goodness demands his rights. What a paradisiac prospect. So the idea that there is a kind of way that we can generate a system that will give for all people as they are, as they need, as primal, as humans. Nietzsche says that that is total jargon, total crap, because there is no such possibility to ground all people under one umbrella to kind of cover that uh, system, and that we must be very wary of any kind of suggestion, because it is simply for him kind of mirror of that same system it's trying to oppose. It seems to be a kind of revitalization or a re, um, reinforcement of the Socratic tendency towards truth and the image and all that, where he says that uh, in order for us to actually oppose opera, to oppose this whole system, we must get at the root of it. That is the Socratic drive towards reason, or what he says to be simply the Alexandrian. So, despite opera's failure, Nietzsche says that there is a zone that does this well, that is, that opposes the Apollonian. And he says that that is the German, everything German, which is naive to me. But he says that German music revitalizes uh, Dionysian music, that Kant and Schopenhauer revitalized Dionysian knowledge, and that German music and philosophy... Uh, Essentially, they're pushing us back to tragedy, which he's very optimistic about. But, you know, it's, it's hard to read that and believe it, right? It just seems like a strange... Um, my God, lost for words. A strange endowment of a field with a kind of emancipatory potential doesn't exist there, but that you believe to be there simply because of your proximity to it. So there is that kind of nationalistic tendency here that is, for me, very troubling um, and not all that critical. It's It just seems like simple patriotism, like as though uh, now if someone were to, I guess, push the same narrative, they could say that, oh, yeah, you know, uh, American sports are going to bring us back to the Dionysian. To which anyone with a sound mind would say, I'm not too sure about that. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe he was on to something. Maybe German music is so um, insular that it was somehow devoid of all the troubles of the Socratic and was able to actually bring up, you know, people back to this perfect time. But it's still, it's still hard because, you know, he goes on here and he says that this is fundamentally a turn back not only to the you know, the great Greeks, but it turned back to, you know, great Germany, <laughs> back to the German spirit itself, that he says has been terrorized by, in quotes, a vast invading force. Now, what that force looks like, it's difficult to say. Is it simply the Socratic, uh, Apollonian, you know, scientific domain? Maybe. Uh, is he referring to other groups that are more, um, you know, embodied? that aren't abstract, like those other concepts, maybe. It's hard to say. Um, but what we essentially get then is through German art, through German culture, 
what he calls a purification through music, at least in the English translation, which is obviously um, disturbing language, considering, you know, what would follow after this, which was written, you know, in the 1870s or 1870 about what would come about, you know, 70 years later is not, is not great. It's not great. So we have to be very careful with this stuff here. So whereas at one time, tragedy and the music that accompanied it was a kind of healing substance for the Greeks, he sees the same thing for the German spirit. And that this music kind of works in tandem with myth and myth-making that, you know, set the roots for kind of foundational nations, for foundational communities and all that, that will allow people to essentially exist in these quote-unquote tragic moments or these tragic uh, experiences. So I think someone with a sound brain would say, well, okay, but what kind of music? Can we say that Billie Eilish fulfills this criterion? Or is this just reserved for Bach and Beethoven? It's How do you draw the distinction there? Or how do we draw this distinction between Salieri and Mozart and Beethoven? Like, do they, are they all doing this as well? What about Wagner? Like, how do, how do we actually draw those lines? To which Nietzsche says, <laughs> only true musicians can understand. <laughs> which is like, what? Um, and it seems like now where, you know, we have something like the internet, and I don't mean to be like a kind of uh, liberal apologist or, or like, oh, the wonders of the internet. But with the internet, we can see that there's all this music that was emerging at the same time from all these different parts of the world that weren't, you know, Bach or Beethoven. And that, I think, would be difficult to, you know, actually say, here are the fundamental differences between them, and this is why these musicians or these composers belong to the Dionysian trend, and these ones to the Apollonian. It just seems odd. It's just very strange to me. And what is more, this music, at least the Dionysian good ones, Good, good music shows us kind of the world's genesis, the genesis of humankind, bringing us back to that primal unity, uh, which he, he says kind of funnily that that could all be a ruse. Like this could be a ruse put in place by the Apollonian to try to convince us of a kind of out, a kind of possible transcendence through this certain type of music. But he says that, nah, that that's not it. That This music is actually bringing us back to it. Anyways, so what has happened to the spectator in this process, in this kind of move towards the Apollonian, in, I guess, in the world of the German cultural movement that he's speaking about? Well, he says that there has been a a sequestering, a kind of shutting away of the possibility of the aesthetic listener, as he calls it, and there's been a move instead towards the critic. There, you know, there is the person that believes themselves capable of engaging with what is going on on stage as though they, you know, are of that same level. Where, of course, for Nietzsche, any kind of real art wouldn't permit that. Any kind of real art would bring you back to a point where you don't have the faculties to look at this as though you were an individual capable of evaluating it. So he says that with this re-emergence of the tragic, we then see the re-emergence of this kind of aesthetic listener that gives themselves over 
to the music in a way that doesn't position them outside of it as, you know, the critic does. So of this kind of phenomenon, he says that while the critic was seizing power in the theater and concert hall, the journalist in schools and the press and society, art degenerated to an object of entertainment of the lowest kind. An aesthetic criticism was used to bind together a vain, distracted, selfish, and furthermore meager and unoriginable unoriginal sociability, the meaning of which is supplied by Schopenhauer's parable of the hedgehogs. In consequence, there has never been a time when art was chattered about so much and valued so little. So because everything is up for criticism in that way, what we see is is a refusal to kind of give oneself over to this kind of singularity, to this kind of being as, you know, being as a thing in itself, not an appearance. Uh, Therefore, we see a kind of uh, disillusionment or a kind of dissipation of the possibility for myth and therefore the possibility of, you know, meaningful, tragic experience. But he says something here that I appreciate. He says that he wants us to kind of dissociate that from a national character, which is, you know, maybe a bigger ask than he thinks because, you know, in response to that, you say, well, it seems like myth and the culture that emerges on top of it today is, or at that time, was indistinguishable from the national character. But he says in making German distinction from France, he says that France, the very thing which was France's great advantage for a long time and the cause of its vast superiority, namely the identity of people and culture, should now as we contemplate the consequences, make us thank our good fortune that this questionable culture of ours still has nothing in common with the noble core of our national character. So instead, all our hopes reach out longingly towards the perception that beneath this restlessly agitated cultural life and senseless education there lies hidden a magnificent inward, inwardly healthy ancient strength which admittedly only stirs powerfully in momentous times and then returns to dreaming of some future awakening. So that's an important distinction, because, you know, if we get at the roots of it, and that is Apollo and Dionysus, their intermingling, their kind of struggle against one another being the foundations for art, these things can't be reduced to, you know, Germany, right? It has to go to another land, to another place which is always important to keep on the horizon. And even there, like it doesn't just go back to uh, the Greeks because the Greeks are full of their own problems, you know, the emergence of Euripides and all that stuff. And it fundamentally always goes back to this primal unity, which is before state. It is before nation. And it is for that reason that we can't simply mobilize it in favor of the nation or the state, which are two things that are very, um, very volatile and things that can very much teeter into very dangerous territory. So with all this, we come to this kind of concluding remark that on the heights, we find the same excessive lust for knowledge, the same unsatisfied delight in discovery, the same enormous growth in worldliness, and alongside these things, a homeless roaming about a greedy scramble to grab a place at the tables of others, frivolous deification of the present, or a dull, numb turning away from it. All of this, subspecies seculae, I definitely mispronounced that, of the here and now, these same symptoms all suggest that at the heart of this culture, there is the same lack, the destruction of myth. 
which comes about in tandem with the destruction of tragedy, which happens when Apollo and Dionysus aren't working together or, you know, against one another in a kind of mutual struggle, tug of war, but when they come apart. So that was essentially the process. These two kind of godly figures came apart, you know, the Apollonian took over, cast Dionysus to the shadows, and then from there we see the destruction of tragedy, then the destruction of myth. So we are left kind of bankrupt in this culture. But of course we must remember that in this tug of war, Nietzsche always privileges the Dionysus, Dionysus, because that is where possibility is created, whereas Apollo just provides the possibility for that kind of chaotic possible intoxication to be represented, but it is always a fleeting representation. So that that propels us here into the Dionysiac worldview, you know, another essay attached to this text that wasn't ever published in Nietzsche's life. So as I said, it's pretty repetitive, so I'm going to be pretty quick with this, even though there are some scholars out there that say that this is a very important essay that clears up some very fundamental things about the birth of tragedy, which, you know, I want to admit that, but I don't read it because as that, just because, you know, I don't read it in the original language, and I don't know if there are like key terms that are being brought up in ways that are lost in translation that I just don't, you know, see significance in. But with that being said, there are some cool insights that I think that are worth bringing up. So he tells us here, as he does in The Birth of Tragedy, that the artist, that the sculptor belongs to the realm of the Apollonian, which is of a, the realm of reality. It represents things, whereas uh, intoxication belonging to the Dionysian is the opposite. You know, it wants to tear apart representation to get at the root of things. That is the primal unity. So we have this fundamental distinction that is the one that has always been pre- presented here between Apollo and Dionysus. But then he gives us a third kind of place in between the two. And he says that it is in between Apollo and Dionysus that we find the sublime and the comical, which corresponded to, from the first half of The Birth of Tragedy, the first talk I did here, the first episode, uh, that corresponds to the Asicles and Sophocles. They are the people that kind of communicate that, which takes from both, that is the sublime belonging to, you know, probably the Dionysian, and then the comical belonging more to the Apollonian, but borrowing from both to create this kind of new, fluid, Uh, thing that exists in between them, which I thought was interesting and an an important distinction. So from this kind of artistic possibility, we see the possibility for emotional expression. So Nietzsche characterizes them as follows. So the two other forms of emotional expression are thoroughly instinctive, without consciousness, and yet they operate in a purposive way. These are the language of gesture and musical tone. So the language of gesture consists of generally intelligible symbols and is produced by reflex movements so these symbols are visible the eye which sees them immediately conveys the state which gave rise to the gesture and which it symbolizes so mostly the spectator feels a sympathetic innervation of the same parts of the face or limbs which he sees in motion so here symbol means a quite imperfect partial copy an elusive sign which requires agreement for its comprehension except that in this case, the general understanding is instinctive, not one which has passed through a clear state of consciousness. So then he continues here, and this is on page 134 or 135, uh, that 
sorry, painting and sculpture represent human beings through gesture. That is, they imitate the symbol and have achieved their effects when we have understood the symbol. The pleasure of looking at them consists in understanding the symbol despite the fact that it is semblance. So we see there as the, as the gesture, the gesture corresponds to the Apollonian, that is the sculptor and the person that represents. So the actor, by contrast, represents the symbol in reality, not just in semblance. But his effect on us does not rest on our understanding of the symbol. Rather, we immerse ourselves in the feeling which is being symbolized and do not merely take pleasure in semblance, in beautiful semblance. So this opens up the possibility for some questions about art. So he says that the only way we can actually engage with art as being good art is by having an understanding of what that art should look like in the world of semblance, in the world of reality, because it belongs to the Apollonian. So he says that a beautiful painting simply means our idea of a painting is fulfilled here. But when we call a painting good, we define our idea of a painting as one which corresponds to the essence of painting. Mostly, however, what is meant by a beautiful painting is a painting which represents something beautiful. This is how laymen judge paintings. They enjoy the beauty of the subject. This is how we are meant to enjoy the plastic arts and drama, except that it cannot be the task here to represent only beautiful things. It is enough for things to appear true. The object represented is meant to be received in as lively and sensuous a manner as possible. It is meant to have the effect of truth. The entirely opposite demand is made by the very work of beautiful semblance. So then we get here, in opposition to gesture, in opposition to semblance, we get the musical. So meditation by musical sound. So this is still on 135. To be more precise, what is symbolized by musical sound is the various modes of pleasure and displeasure without any accompanying representation. But then Nietzsche asks a very interesting question. When does sound become music? So he says, above all, in the supreme states of pleasure and displeasure experienced by the will, as a will which rejoices or a will which is frightened to death, in short, the intoxica intoxication, intoxication of feeling in the shout. And he continues, how much more powerful and immediate is a shout compared to something seen? But the gentler stirrings of the will, too, have their symbols in sound. In general, there is a sound to parallel every gesture, but its, but its intensification to pure musical sound can only be achieved through the intoxicate, intoxication of feeling. Please excuse my reading errors, Christ. So then the final thing I want to bring up here is that uh, he gives us another distinction. That is the distinction between the epic and the lyric, where he says that the former leads to the plastic arts, that is the realm of representation and semblance and drama, whereas the latter leads us to music. So the epic associated with the plastic arts and then the lyric associated with music. So pleasure in the phenomenal world governs epic poetry. The will reveals itself in lyric poetry. So the former sets itself free of music. The latter remains bound up with it. And that's, I think, more or less the text, you know, I didn't want to be too repetitive here with this uh, Dionysiac worldview, but there are definitely things I didn't get to, so it's always important to read it. Uh, but I think for the most part, I was pretty faithful to Nietzsche here. Um, but you have to read it. But if you haven't, or if you have, um, I hope that I was of some help. And if you have any problem, 